This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Whoop, the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training through a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that provides analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Learn more at whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com and use code NOMEAT at checkout to save 15%. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to me Athlete Radio. Matt, I had, I had one of those moments last week where I felt like the whole world was crashing down on me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I like it's in my whole life. <laughs> How does it feel? Well, I did it. <laughs> That's sad. It's <laughs> a life of anxiety. You just yeah. always... Always watching out, thinking, worried about, uh, you know, waiting for the other other shoe to drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I realized I was getting old. <laughs> yeah. And and it 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 ha- it hit me in a way that I didn't expect. We were uh, we went to Tybee Island in Georgia. Have you have you ever been to Tybee? No, I don't think so. I hadn't either. It's like right. It's like right outside Savannah. So it's like the Folly Beach of Savannah. Okay. If you've been to Folly. I know which is outside yeah. Charleston. Yeah. <laughs> terrible comparison. Um, and it's like, you know, we get there. I'd never been there before. We go with another couple and their, their kids, so our two kids and the six of us. And um, we're staying on this one end of the island. We're at this, like, house. It's beautiful. The beach is totally quiet and dead and absolutely gorgeous. We're like, man, this island is, is quiet and, and family-friendly and wonderful. Um, and then uh, on the last night, we go out to dinner and... Um, it's a Saturday night. We go out to dinner and we're like, we should go get ice cream. We hear there's this great ice cream spot kind of down where like all the stores are. Mm-hmm. And you get ice cream? Uh, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I guess I should have clarified that. But yes, of course, vegan ice cream. And um, and so we're, we're taking our bikes around and like the girls are in the like bike, you know, wagon thing that was, I'm pulling behind my bike. And um and we roll up to the street where the where the restaurants are and the ice cream shop, and it's just like super crowded and filled with these really drunk college students that are just mm-hmm. screaming and smoking cigarettes and just like yelling. And we're like, "Oh my gosh, where are we? Like, what <laughs> what happened here?" And the ice cream spot is right next to this um, to go daiquiri place where mm. I guess apparently on the island you can you can drink you know walk around open container and um and there was like this daiquiri place and and everyone was just like stumbling out of this place with just (laughs) these daiquiris that are just spilling everywhere and i'm like trying to protect eliza from you know getting spilled (laughs) you know rum on and and i'm like oh my god this is terrible (laughs) and we leave and and kay looks over me and she's like like two years ago that would have been you (laughs) i'm like oh my god no (laughs) it would have been me (laughs) I would have loved that place. Yeah. Well, you know what? I I think you I think maybe you uh you go over a little hump cuz I feel like I would love that place now. <laughs> but wouldn't have for a little while when the kids were really young. Uh-huh. But now that they can sort of kind of watch themselves. Yeah. And like if you find a spot, especially if it's like I mean, I don't know, this is nighttime, but like if you find a spot, and you know this, if you find a spot where you can like a brewery in Asheville or right. a, a plaza in Spain that has a playground on it. Like, if you find a spot where we can go have some drinks and the kids, like, entertain themselves and also we see them, it's perfect. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, that's as good as it gets. But anyway, I, yeah. <laughs> this I, was I definitely that. a little rowdier than, I mean, I'm a big, <laughs> right. you know, you know I'm a big fan of taking Eliza Breweries, but. Yeah, right. 
That's funny. Yeah, it was funny. It was it was like this. It was like this. Oh man, I really am like I have moved on to a completely different phase of my life. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. I mean, I've definitely had I have those moments a lot for sure. And and I think maybe it's kids that that bring it. I guess if you didn't have kids, you'd probably have other things to do. But for me, it's just been like, you know, you start to see the kids' friends who are like approaching my height, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, like like it's just crazy. I mean, not not that I'm tall, but it's still like. I don't know. You just you just start to realize that you are a different generation from like who what is cool now, right? I mean, you just yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm just lost in the in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're just walking around aimlessly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't even know anyway, what an emoji is. No, I really don't. <laughs> I mean, I do. I don't know what the difference is between that and emoticon. I thought I I thought that was called emoticon. So I don't. I, well, it is. I think it's emoji is short for emoticon. But why did it go to emoji? Like, what is that? What is that? I don't know. Right? I mean, I mean, it's not like a natural way of shorting a con. It's not like I would say, uh, I don't know. What ends in a con? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's what like it is. Like leprechaun. That's... I wouldn't call that a leprechaun. 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 <laughs> right? It's not like a natural... I don't know. So I just figured that was some Japanese import or something, and then I and then I that's what I punted on it all. I said I don't understand this. We uh, we've been using Slack to communicate the the mm-hmm. like chat we software, ha- you know, and um and you get to react with emojis and stuff. And I've been trying to do it more towards you because I think it's funny <laughs> to do that. <laughs> and and like every time I, I just a picture every time me like hearting something or thumbs upping something, you just being like oh. <laughs> I don't know if well, that's true or not. But. Well, I, I saw the other day you put a 100 one next to something, and I was <laughs> yeah. like, "What is like? What does that mean? Is that like 100 percent yes? I'm into that." Yeah, that means like that means like you got a 100 on your test, and you're like, "Yeah, perfect oh, score." Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I didn't know why it said 100, but yeah, but it just makes me laugh every time I do it. So <laughs> sorry about that. It's all right. Good. Anyway. Anyway. So uh, speaking of hundreds. good transition good segue you've got one coming up i do which i think we'll talk more about next week when it is actually coming up when it's Mm -hmm. when it's imminent Um, that's right but But anyway just eight days from today yeah a week from tomorrow yeah which means you're in full taper mode right i am in full taper mode and you're starting to kind of think through some gear and get that organized a little bit Mm -hmm. right it uh, it definitely feels it feels a little different being like not one of my first couple, and especially since it's the first one that I've I've like already run the course. Uh huh. Um, the like prep feels a little bit different, but it's yeah. still gonna be the exact same distance and the exact same uh, elevation gain that you know all the other ones are, and so I gotta prepare for it just as I would anything else. Is uh, are you finding that you're like? I don't know, like less stressed about the nutrition, like sort of now that you're like an old veteran saying like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I'll just do it, do what, uh, whatever, whatever we got, I'll be fine with. Yeah, not so much, you know, because I'm vegan, I think I I can't rely 100% on the aid stations. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll have something for me at every single one, I'm sure that, but you know, like all the like heartier stuff that they cook hot, you know oftentimes yeah. that stuff so like oftentimes they'll be cooking up like eggs and right sandwiches and stuff like that that um you know that i have to stay away from mm-hmm. or i choose to stay away from um you know so i if so I, I do need to replace that kind of stuff but it's definitely like i remember 
even a little bit less so last time, but I mean, really every hundred I've done, I've had like this massive box of food, you know, and uh, just a whole huge list of different options that I can choose from. And, um, you know, that I have taken notes ahead of time to tell my mm-hmm. crew to prep for me and everything like that. And I think this time I'm feeling like, you know, they'll, I, I want a couple of warm staples. Mm-hmm. You know, I might even like, now that thermoses are so good, I might even just boil hot water and stuff ahead of time and have, you know, be able to make oatmeal or something, you know, that they don't even have to cook it kind of thing. Yep. Um, so it, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to go a little bit easier on, on the crew and on, on myself. Cause I, I end up not eating most of that food anyway. Right. Right. Um, you know, I got a great, uh, product placement mention here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, un, unsponsored. Un, unsponsored. Just people, the people who I've met, uh, I heard not of it, who I, I was email introduced to and I've been eating their stuff. It's called leaf side at like L E A F side. Okay. And what they have is foods that I kind of have always wished existed, which is, uh, meals that all you need to do is add boiling water to them in like a metal or any kind of dish, but they give you a metal dish with it. And I think they're like eight or nine bucks a meal. So they're not like the cheapest things you can eat, mm-hmm. but it's entirely whole food plant-based stuff. I think they're all oil-free. There might be some salt in some of them. I always add salt to them anyway, but, um, and it's just all these different like curry dishes and black bean huh. and tomato soup. And so they're all these, so it's, it's like if you are, uh, on a road trip sort of thing or the situation where you have a crew who could make you, you know, pour boiling water and let something sit for 10 minutes in advance of you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's just great to get this stuff. What's huh. what I really like, what's the neatest thing is that they also have, they have smoothie ones and they have savory ones. Again, this is not an ad. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm excited about this product. Um, they have smoothie ones that you just add, I guess, ice and water to and you blend it and it has all kinds of, you know, berries and nuts and things and even like peas in them. Um, but if you eat one smoothie and one, one of the other ones per day, one sweet one, one savory per day, you get all of Dr. Gregor's daily dozen Wow! in, in two meals. Yeah. That's cool. It is cool. I, I, that's, I like that. Is it a, is it an order thing or can you get it at the store? I think they're at this, they're pretty small companies though. It's all order. Uh huh. But interesting. anyway, it is interesting. Yeah. And, and the guys seem nice. So it's called Leafside if you're interested. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll check that out for next. It week. might might be a little too late for that, but who knows? <laughs> maybe not. You may want to try it in advance, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, just passing along a recommendation. Yeah, but that's I mean that's honestly like the kind of thing like I I don't need I, you know I don't need to have a big meal cooked for me this time. Not right. that they were cooking a big meal for me last time, but like you know heating up rice and beans and things like that were were kind of a staple of mine, and I'm trying to avoid that kind of thing just to keep it easy. Yeah, makes sense. Mm-hmm. So will you have any hot food? Yeah, I definitely want to have something. Right. Um, I mean, because it last year in particular, and this year the weather's looking pretty much the exact same so far a week out. Um, it's going to be cold. It's going to be in the 30s at night and, you know, 70, yeah. 60s during the day. Um, so, like, I just picture myself coming into an aid station in the middle of the night, you know, really cold and yeah. wanting something hot. Right. Um, I had the, uh, the Amy's chickenless noodle mm-hmm. soup yeah it was really good i, I had you that need a burn you need a way of heating it up but right which i could bring my camping stove to do that I, that's actually a really good idea because that broth and then there's some noodles right. in there too right. you get saltiness and all that mm-hmm. yeah that that's a that's a really good one katie, i got that for katie when she had the flu a couple weeks ago mm. she really liked that mm-hmm. so good 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 tips right. matt thank you 
Always good. Well, yeah. So we might we might talk more about this next week, but uh, we will. But that was sort of a teaser for (laughs) just in case you thought a hundred miles was a long way to run. (laughs) Just in case you were impressed by me. (laughs) Uh, People are are running thirty one hundred miles in races, Doug. In a race, and we talked about this a while ago, which is before we knew this interview would happen. I think I briefly mentioned it. I I forget in what context, but I had seen it on YouTube, saw the trailer, and thought that's kind of neat. But anyway. yeah, so, so the guest today is Sanjay Rawal, and his movie that he made is called 3100 Run and Become, and it's about this race. It is a 3100-mile race around a half-mile block or, I don't know, half-mile course in New York City um, that you do, or people do, and it takes, I think, it, two months is the limit. Is that right, Doug? Yeah, like 56 days or something, 58 days. Yeah. It might be two months exactly, but... Anyway, there's a limit that makes you, you essentially maybe have to the, run. Maybe the winner is like 250-something days. Anyway, keep maybe. going. But, but you have to essentially run, I think, 60 miles per day. Is that right? Mm-hmm. To finish? Yeah. Right. Yep. Which sounds incredibly fast because I think that's like the world record for running across the United States, uh, mm-hmm. some, something in that range of time. Um, but as we kind of discovered as we talked to him, this is somewhat friendlier terrain than that, obviously. It's completely flat, I think. Uh, and you've got, you know, access every half mile to whatever you need and mm-hmm. you don't need to, like he mentioned, you don't need to drive off the course and, you know, do the things that it would require to run across the country. So, um, that's why it's faster, but I mean, just insane amount of running that you're running <laughs> that long for that many days. Right, right. I guess it's 50 miles a day for 60 days. That might be what it was. Um, anyway, so, but, but I think what's really cool about this whole thing is this isn't just another suffer fest ultra see who can do the the dumbest thing the longest or you know (laughs) right like the old pushing the baby stroller back and forth unsupported across whatever like take whatever the coolest longest ultra is and then do it out and back by pushing your own stuff in a baby stroller and that's how you like do the ultra thing these days it seems to me fair doug totally fair right (laughs) yeah i think that sums up all the ultra running scene (laughs) good perfectly (laughs) uh so anyway, it's it's not that because it, it has this spirituality component to it where they do a meditation, a one-minute meditation before they begin the race. And I don't know what other spirituality is required. We should have asked this. Like, is that all that is required of spirituality for this race? It's called running – or no, sorry. It, the race is called the Self-Transcendence 3100, I think. Um, but we should have asked, what, like, is there more about the self-transcendence, or is that just sort of implicit in if you're going to run that far, you're going to transcend run a half-mile loop for 3,100 <laughs> miles. <laughs> so I guess that's probably what it is. But it's, uh-huh. it sounds like there's a lot of that tied into, of course, tied into the film uh, and the race itself. So anyway, that I like that component. That was really interesting to me, and we talked a lot about that without actually asking what, why is it called self-transcendence. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Anyway, I don't know. It's, it's cool. Uh, Sanjay was awesome. And it turns out he's a Nomad Athlete fan, which... Yes, yeah. which was really surprising. We did not know that coming into the interview. And there's there's a I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a quite a twist that I unexpected twist related to vegetarian and veganism in this race. Yes, there is. That was not one of our questions even, but we learned some interesting things about that. Yeah, I re- I really loved this conversation. Just I mean, it's just a fascinating thing that these these people are doing and um I mean, I could have I literally could have talked to him for hours just asking questions about how it all works and <laughs> Yeah. What people what people do. So well, he invited I, I us think, to come to New York and, and hang out. I know. Out. I really you could ask I really, I really want to do that. Maybe we need like, a New York trip. We should take a New York trip. And just sit, just bring our lawn chairs and 
sit and watch the race for it starts i think he said father's day is that right is it father's day i think so that sounds right all right which is when (laughs) (laughs) june 16th june 16th oh it's coming up you know i'll actually be in new york for a weekend during that time maybe i'll call up sanjay and go see him you totally should watch a lap or two what if i can run a lap or two sure you can just a block in new york right it's not like they close the street for two months right maybe all right well i'll i'll fill you in maybe we'll do a live podcast Ooh, yeah i like that idea (laughs) i like that idea a lot all right good anything else to uh to set this one up with doug i don't think so except that even if you're even if you're not into ultra running i think you're gonna like this and it's just a fascinating event you know it's just one of those things yes agreed people are gonna enjoy i think excellent all right let's get to it Doug, this episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Whoop, the performance tool that is changing the way people track their fitness and optimize their training. Whoop is a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to their app that provides analytics and insights on three key areas. The first one is strain. 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 You've got to love strain as an athlete, right? Everybody's yeah. all about strain and adaptation. With insights into heart rate, average heart rate, resting heart rate, max heart rate, that's a lot of heart rates, and <laughs> calories burned. And it yep. even auto-detects activities like running, cycling, or yoga, or Muay Thai, and rates the strain level. And, uh, you know, I got, like, one of my favorite things when I'm wearing this band is uh, is to see when it detects certain activities. Like, uh, like, like even if I'm just, like, mowing the lawn or something like that, I'm like, is it going to detect me? And usually it does. Yeah. It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> Whenever your heart rate goes up, it, it, it knows it. It knows. <laughs> it, knows. It, it doesn't know about your, uh, your, your social activities at night, does it? <laughs> <laughs> Second area is recovery. <laughs> recovery. Looks at heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and sleep quality. You get a recovery score when you wake up. I love checking for that recovery score each morning. Very mm-hmm. addictive, which lets them know, the app know, how hard your body's working and insight into if your body's ready to be pushed or if it needs more rest. And I got a lot of days where I needed more rest on there. Yeah. You, you don't, it's just like running too easy that, or running too hard thinking you're doing easy runs. It turns out you need more rest than you think, according to Whoop anyway. And there's sometimes when like, when you're more recovered than than you think you are there you go and the third area is sleep the whoop band monitors heart rate throughout sleep to look at sleep quality sleep cycles and times within each stage of sleep which we've talked quite a bit about in previous episodes mm-hmm. rem deep and light the app then provides sleep performance insights based on your actual sleep versus sleep need basically the whoop band provides an insight into your training and recovery unlike anything we have seen before to learn more, visit whoop.com. That's W H O O P.com. And when you're ready to get started, use code NOMEAT at checkout to save 15%. Do it. It's worth it. Hey, everyone. Matt and Doug here. We are with Sanjay Rawal, who is the filmmaker behind the uh, new film, The 3100 Run and Become, uh, which we actually talked about a few episodes back. Doug just sort of offhand mentioned this crazy event that I happened to come across on YouTube. Uh, not knowing at all that uh, we would be we'd be talking to Sanjay in, in a few you know short weeks after that. So, anyway, Sanjay, welcome to Nomad Athlete Radio, and thanks for joining us. Thank you ha- for having me. You guys have inspired both my approach to running and my approach to nutrition for a number of years now, and it's a it's an absolute honor to be a fanboy live. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is awesome. We had no idea uh, when we when you set this up that you were a Nomad Athlete fan. So, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so as I said, we talked about this earlier because this is this is one of those things that I don't know just holds fascination for us. Both of us are ultra runners. Uh, neither of us, though, is a multi-day ultra runner unless you count my hundred miler and Doug's, I guess, taking more than 
uh, one day, uh, but not too many, not too much more than that. No more than a few hours after, more than that. So, um, I guess the first thing to ask is just about about the race and and it, like you know why why is it thirty one hundred miles? Like, what is there a significance behind that number? Um, why only a half mile long? And, and can you just I mean give us the background of what what it's about and uh, and really why you made this film? For sure, the movie is called Thirty One Hundred Run and Become. It's available now on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play, etc. But the film focuses on the world's longest officially certified race, which is three thousand one hundred miles. It requires athletes to average at least uh, fifty nine miles a day to finish within the fifty two day window. It's a multi day race, which means that you know you have. 52 days to run this race, but the course is open 18 hours a day, and the course itself is a little bit mind-blowing because it's a half-mile loop around a high school in Queens on sidewalk, and the race is held in the nice, sticky months of um, New York City summer. <laughs> so that's uh, crazy, of course. <laughs> what, I mean... Why? Like, why? I mean, I know I've seen, I know there are multi day events. I've seen, heard people running across the country. I've heard of 10 day or seven day races. I mean, what's, why is this so, so long? So I'll, I'll start like a zillion years ago and do a quick jump into the present. Um, in, in the film, we, you know, we spend time with the Kalahari Bushmen, with Japanese monks, with Navajo runners, people from traditional running cultures where running, like for most humans, you know, a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand years ago, running was a spiritual activity that literally connected your consciousness, your personality to Mother Earth and to Father Sky, as the Navajo put it. That said, you know, um, by the mid 1970s, especially with the with the 1976 bicentennial version of the New York City Marathon, marathoning stopped being the kind of counterculture pursuit that it had been before that. And in the 80s, runners who had basically done the marathon were really, really eager to push into longer and longer distances. Of course, you know, that's always been true. Um, but the, the New York City Marathon uh, president, Fred LeBeau, partnered up with an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy to restart six-day races in New York City. Now, these races used to occur in the late 1800s. They were held in Madison Square Garden. Um, it was like a horse race where you'd bet on which man or woman would do the most miles around a quarter mile loop in six days. And so they started holding these six day races. Courses are open for 24 hours. The idea is do as many miles as you can in those six days uh, around a one mile loop in a park. And runners began starting with 80, 85 miles on average. Then people came in and started doing you know, 90, 100 miles. And by the early 1990s, Sri Chinmoy decided to kind of start a 1,000-mile race, then a 1,300-mile race. And in 1997, it pushed into what's still now the ultimate distance for a multi-day 3,100-mile uh, race. Yeah, that is – I mean, it's absolutely incredible to think about not just running that far, but running that far on such, in such like a small physical footprint – I mean, you know, really, there's nothing like when I think about running an ultra, you know, a lot of people think about trails and big mountains. And, you know, of course, there are the track events and the things like that um, where you're running around a track for a certain amount of time. But, um, you know, like what draws somebody to, to A, want to run that far, but, but B, do it in such like a confined space like this? 
you know, yeah, like if you're going to do it, why not run across the country, right? I mean, like, you get yeah. to see something cool. And, and people do. And, 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 but if, if, you know, we all know how tired we get in, in 24 hour or 100 mile races. Imagine starting in San Francisco and then having to cross the Sierras, then the Wasatch Range, then the, then the Rockies. Um, and as, as a, a famous uh, uh, participant of, of that transcontinental run, Marshall Ulrich mentioned in his book, you know, he had a headwind from Denver all the way to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and you're running on the side of a road. It's not always convenient to, like, stop and do your business on the side of the road <laughs> at night. Where you stop is where you've got to start the next day, but you might have to drive your RV 40 miles or go to a hotel. You don't have aid every half a mile as you do on this loop. And for most people who have run across the U.S., doing 50, 60, 70 miles a day, they say you don't actually really care what's around you. You're so focused within yourself on each step and trying to make each step a ritual that it's less about like, you know, mind bending scenery. And hence the loop races, like when you go into like a, a meditative, actually meditative state, when you're running to try to remain in the flow and let the hours just click by, you don't want to have traffic. You want to be able to take care of physical needs literally every half a mile. And these runners are taking 10 to 12,000 calories a day. And it's a lot easier to take that, you know, every one mile or so rather than having to sit down and eat a thousand calories, you know, basically every 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've done a 24 hour race. That was a looped race. It was a, it was a 5k loop. Um, and I definitely understand that, that, that feeling of, you know, after the first couple laps, you just kind of get into the flow state and don't really think about where you're going or what you're doing. And I, and I can only imagine on a sidewalk, you know, that's a half mile loop. I mean, I, I just can't even you, like, you must have to, you have to release yourself of, of what you're, the repetitiveness of what you're doing and just kind of focus inward and, and focus on moving forward. And that- 90% of the training is, is done, you know, in people's minds before they get to the course. Cause it, the, the, the it's not so much that the course is intimidating like no one's going to get bored. Like, you know, in your 20, in your 24 hour loop race, like you don't get mind numbingly bored on the first day, or maybe even if you're doing it two days in a row, it's the miles that end up killing you. It's right. the pain that ends up taking you down. So the, the training tactic is really to minimize problems. The training tactic is to find a place within yourself where you can do those miles and you're happy. So it becomes much less about the course than it becomes about like the the kind of like inner dimension to the race. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that specifically because I've I've heard about that in ultra running. I can't say I've really experienced it, but I think I remember Scott Jurek mentioned it maybe in his book. Might have been Born to Run, but I think it was Scott's book um, where he just talked about the very fact of it breaking you down so much that you get to this point where you just have there's nothing left and the only thing that it seems is moving you forward is your your mind and this will to do it and in that suffering is kind of everything stripped away and that's where you know you see god or whatever it is that you're you're looking for uh is that what it is here or is it is the the boredom a fact i mean you said that boredom is not that big of a factor perhaps uh, as much as just the needing to keep going is is that what it is that you, i mean you're just so broken down that you know <laughs> there's nothing left to see so I, I thought that when I when we started uh, the production on this film, but you know when I spent some time with our, our Navajo character 
uh, Sean Martin, who's the race director of probably the most beautiful ultra in the U.S., um, in a spot on the Navajo Reservation called Canyon de Chez. It's a 55-kilometer race. I went for a morning run with him. And, you know, I, I'm waiting for my, my Sunto watch to, like, tag its GPS satellite. I'm, <laughs> in, in my head, the run's already done. Like, I'm thinking, oh, we're going to go out for an hour, and I'm going to maybe do, like, eight miles, eight and a half if, if we're going at a good clip. And so my mind is already going. And I noticed within the first half mile that Sean was running with a completely different intention. And what I learned later was that when Sean goes out for his morning runs, he knows that, that, he, that he knows that he's doing that run to become a better person, not with like a training goal in mind. I mean, he's an exceptional runner, don't get me wrong. But that said, it's like, I learned from traditional running cultures that there's a place that you can run from step one that is happiness and where there's no amount of physical suffering that can deter that happiness. When I've done ultras like, you know, multi-day races, and I've seen this with the 3100, for those of us who come from a Western standpoint, it takes three or four or five days before the mind finally gives up and goes like, oh God, you're going to do this for another three days or month or two months two months, I might as well try to enjoy it. So it's not about the suffering at all, but it's about literally entering, entering into this kind of flow that again, I saw Sean go into within the first mile, hmm. but enter into this flow where it's like the running becomes exceptionally enjoyable. And it's not about like breaking down all your past, you know, failures and going through your suffering and your breakups, your divorces, your addictions and all that stuff. It's like running is actually, it becomes a lot more fun that it is on a day-to-day -day basis. That's, uh, sounds like what I need, Doug. I think I need just nice and thirsty. <laughs> I mean, I can't get through a run without listening to a podcast or having something to, to do. It just, it's, I, I mean, I love training for things, but the actual running has never been that fun. So, I mean, that's why I think this is, this is uh, compelling to me. Is the, I'm not, don't get any ideas here, anybody. I'm not, not going to do this race, but it's just interesting. <laughs> um, is, is this race, I mean, I got the sense that because there's this meditation, one minute long meditation that starts out this 52 day thing, um, that this is actually, a, this race is for this reason, right? This like, is all multi-day racing up? It's, I'm sure it's not all about this spiritual, you know, glimpse into, into a spiritual side of life. I mean, but this race is, is I got the sense that it's actually for that. Is that correct? You know, the, I, the, I think the best corollary is, you know, the, the, the Japanese marathon monks. And we, we, we feature them in the film. And if people put their math hat on really quickly, once a generation, an aspirant is picked to trek in the highlands outside the city of Kyoto. And they've got to do a thousand days split into 10 hundred day cycles. Um, and you've got to finish those thousand days in seven or eight years. So one year it's a thousand, it's a hundred days. Another year it might be 200 days. Each cycle has a set mileage. First cycle is around 11 and a half miles a day. The last cycles are about 56 and a half miles a day. And you're doing them around like, you know, um, a 15 kilometer loop, but over and over and over and over. And the kicker is if you don't finish your daily mileage, you have to take your life. Um, that said, that's, that, that said, when you're looking at like distances like the 3100, you know, it's, it's all about like, trying to turn the practice into a ritual. And I think the only way to enjoy those types of distances is to look at it spiritually. I mean, people can like will themselves through a 24 hour race. You know, it, the exceptional athletes can will themselves through a six day race. 
But when you're getting to something like longer and longer and longer, you need to be running with some kind of a purpose, you know, whether it's to like remember a lost loved one, whether it's to like show yourself you could do it. In that, in, in any sense, it's like people do the 3100 because they know if they come in with the right attitude, they will literally leave the race as different people in a good way, like transformed people. So the spirituality helps. It's like not everybody comes from it from like a Hindu or a Buddhist or like a meditation-based background, but every single person that I've known of that's done the race, you know, from the beginning has come in like understanding that at the end of the day, it's good to have faith in yourself, but if you can somehow have faith in something else, that something else, even the belief in that something else, it usually makes you enjoy the experience more and you do better. So do you think it's fair to say that that people are coming in much more for the experience than for the actual race? There was a guy in 2018, a, a, a world-ranked 1,000-mile uh, specialist uh, named Kobe Oren. And Kobe is from Israel, you know, has to do mandatory, you know, military service. He came in with that kind of regimented idea. And I don't mean regimented in a bad sense, but like, I'm going to do X number of miles. I'm going to push through it. But I think by halfway through, he found that he wasn't really enjoying himself. And if he began to stop thinking about the miles and started looking at everything, almost in the way a samurai would, like, you know, I'm going to tie my shoes a certain way. I'm going to like enjoy each bite of food. I'm going to really like focus on what each step feels like. I'm going to focus on each breath. He, he made the race into a ritual and he came out of it saying that like, I, I came out, he said, I came out with an attitude that was totally different about running than when I started. Mm. It's like, now I really understand like why I run. And so who ends up winning these things? Like, is it, is it the person who, I mean, first of all, are people placing bets on these anymore? Or is that, uh, is that we no should? Longer? We should. Yeah. I mean, it's like like that 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 the the person who wins ends up being the person who's got the fewest number of bad days. Mm-hmm. Um, like you can't win the race in one day, but you can definitely lose the race in one day. If you th- if you think about how, you know just being on the average on the edge of the average and doing sixty miles a day. Um, there was a 60-year-old woman in 2017, an American woman named Yolanda Holder, African-American from Los Angeles, who was exactly on track through about you know halfway through the race. And then she had a colossally bad day and just was able to eke out 25, 26 miles. That meant for the last you know half of the race, instead of averaging 60 miles a day, she had to average 62 and change a day which meant that she had to push until the race ended every night at midnight. And so in, in that sense, it's like, and she, and she finished with an hour to spare. In, in that sense, the people that end up winning are the ones who, number one, spend the most time on the course, number two, have the fewest bad days, and number three, you know, somehow manage to forget about you know, just the, the sheer audacity of trying to run 60 or 70 miles a day. And they don't let those numbers scare them. And if mm-hmm. they feel like running an 86-mile day, they do. So you didn't say anything about uh, anyone's, like, ability to, to run as being a big factor in, in this. Uh, you certainly didn't mention genetics. And I think that's really interesting because we've talked about that quite a bit here, that, like, 
the longer the race, it seems that the less it's about genetics and the more it becomes about uh, partly about your training and a large part about your training, but also about nutrition. And then, you know, that, that other thing, the mental game and, and, you know, perhaps the spiritual game as well, uh, in this case, but I read in, in some of the notes about, uh, you know, suggested questions and topics and things like that, that, um, they mentioned that they call this sort of a gender equalizer and in these multi-day races, uh, gender kind of goes out the window as far as, again, I'm just being an example of, of the genetic factor becoming almost completely unimportant. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit with this one? Yeah. So, so like you know, when when you're looking at a marathon and 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 lower, you know, men obviously usually do about ten percent faster than women. When you get to the thirty one hundred, the the fastest time is by a man, and it's probably ten to fifteen percent faster than the fastest woman. That said, like when you're looking at a marathon. You know, very rarely in and almost almost never in like a, a marathon major in an elite race would a woman place in the top twenty men. Um, but here, as as you get longer and longer and longer, you start seeing that there are you know women who far outclass most of the men. And you know, for shorter distances, like the 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 current superstar of note is Courtney Dawalter. Um, mm-hmm. When you when you get to the 3100, there's probably let's say if there's there's about 12 people that do the race every year, eight are men, four are women. Usually all the women finish, or at least three three quarters of the women finish, whereas maybe only half the men finish. Last year, a woman placed in the top three. Um, she was a woman from Slovakia, Kaninika Janikova was third. You start seeing that you know that the issue is much more about how you can compartmentalize problems. Some people feel on the nutrition side that having a higher percentage of body fat definitely helps, and that helps with ultra-distance races like this. I I think there's going to be a day very soon where a woman actually takes first place. Um, I think it's much, much less about physiology, and I think the only reason why a a woman hasn't won the 3100 is because – you know, it it it's almost expected that in all these races that men are going to do better. But there's going to be a woman who comes in who just goes like, I'm not going to measure myself according to any other runner. I'm not going to look at where I am on the leaderboard. I'm going to run my own race. And it's that kind of like Courtney Dahlwalter-esque runner who's going to come into the 3100 and really blow apart gender barriers. Are they are these typically pretty competitive in the sense that like they're that the top runners are fairly close to each other by the end of this or, or because it's so long are they pretty spread out it, it it varies like no no one really can race it against anybody else until the last three or four days when you see that somebody is trying to catch you um, at the same time like most of the runners um, who've done exceptionally well have really fast marathon times. Like in the early mm. days of the 3100, they were sub 230 marathoners. Um, you know, there recently, you know, people that do well have pretty exceptional 24-hour race times. Um, so they do have a little bit of a sense of how to how to pull an extra 10 or 15 miles out in any single day and, and pad their lead. Oh. Okay, so. I want to talk a little bit about what this actually does to you physically to, to be running 60 miles or, you know, like you said, having an 80 mile day, you know, just 
is would be a good thing, right? Uh, you know, day in and day out for for this long, what what kind of what's happening to people's bodies? So uh, I'll take a step back, and you guys are experts in this. You know, if 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 a, if someone with with no experience in fasting came to you and said, like, if I don't eat solid food for like a week, I'm gonna die. You'd go like, you know, plenty of people have done it and haven't died. And they're fine and they're maybe even better. And people can can conjecture maybe there's a, a kind of state of human physiology that understands how to utilize, you know, low calorie situations and it kicks into ketosis, for example, which mm-hmm. people now know is the response. Um, that said, it's like I've seen what people that do ultra, ultra distances that, you know, you're not pushing anything close to an anaerobic level. And there's low-grade inflammation happening at every single second. But it's low-grade enough that it's not, like, damaging. But it also means that you can you can address your inflammation through circulation. So in my, in my own limited experience with multi-day races, when you go to sleep at night, it feels like you're basically, like, laying on a bed of broken glass. Um, but when you're up the next morning and you're moving again, you're just like, oh, my God, this feels so much better. Um, so a lot of people's bodies take care of issues through the movement. People can take six months to eight months to feel fully recovered. And with the exception of one person out of the 80 or 90 people that have run the race who needed a hip replacement five or six years after he set you know, a, a national best for for the 3100, most people don't have any long-term damage. You know, you're, you're not moving at a clip where you're just destroying yourself. The race is much more about patience and understanding where the edge of your envelope is and remaining within that threshold. I do want to get into things like, you know, what people, how people actually do this, like as far as nutrition, like specific strategies and things like that that you've seen. Um, but something you just said struck me. Um, I just like, I mean, that's an incredible, you know, distance to run to, to have what you just said, that only one person has had to have any major work done as a result of it. But when you talk to someone, you know, on the street about running an ultra marathon or even just running a marathon or training, you know, as a runner for five or 10 years, you just get the thing like, you know, oh, well, your knees are going to be shot by the time you're 50. Uh, is that, I mean, is that whole thing just complete, like, are, are people just thinking about running entirely wrong? Um, like, you know, no one mentions the idea of your body healing itself through the movement. Uh, I mean, what's, what's the difference there? So yeah, in, in the movie, uh, 3100 Run and Become, you know, we spend time in the Kalahari Desert with people that have been running for 125,000 years. And you're with, with the Bushmen that are, are semi-nomadic, um, and you're living in the savanna, and your only adaptation is your ability to move. Like, you couldn't move around on crutches. You couldn't roll through the desert in a wheelchair. It's like your body's whole lifestyle is focused around your ability to remain as a human being in, in its most animalistic physical form. At the same time, like, when you look at our lifestyle as runners in the West— there's so much that we do that isn't conducive to running as a lifestyle. If you look at like traditional cultures like the Kalahari Bushmen, we sit in chairs all day, we're eating sugar, we're eating things that just add to long-term inflammation. We're not flexible. You know, a Bushman running bare feet, like God, I, I, I don't think I could run 
a quarter mile hard in bare feet. You look at how we've evolved to run and look at how our lifestyles are so, you know, just uh, just inhibit the evolutionary advantages we've built. Um, I guarantee you, uh, 5,000 years ago, people weren't complaining about like knee problems from running. Um, so it, it's a question of like, how do you balance your desire to run and, you know, and integrate parts of your lifestyle or change parts of your lifestyle, adapt them to suit your pursuit of running. So it sort of sounds like you're saying that people, because they are having to run for so many hours of the day, uh, you know, that prevents them from doing these other behaviors that are, that are so detrimental to recovery and just to that sort of lifestyle. Um, which, which made me, you know, remind me of, I wanted to know what, like, what do they do when they're not like, what's the strategy? Are they, are they trying to pace themselves throughout the day? I imagine they're obviously leaving a, a large chunk for sleep, but are they, are some people like hurrying up and getting it done in the morning so they can go get a haircut or like, you know, do, do whatever? <laughs> or are they, is it more like, I mean, I don't know, like just, or are people's whole time dedicated to, you know, getting massages, doing whatever therapy type stuff just to get themselves ready to do it the next day? So the, the, the first few hours, like the course opens at six in the morning and you have to be there at six. Um, the first few hours, people are just really just warming up and loosening up. And then from like eight to 12, you're really trying to get in some good miles. And good miles means if you're like a fast runner, you're doing like five miles an hour. Um, then from 12 to six, it's usually quite warm. And so you're just out there like walking and jogging, maybe between three and a half and like four and a half miles in an hour, um, taking an hour break, maybe twice a day um, or once a day. But then at six o'clock, everybody's loosened up. Everybody's feeling good. And the, the temperatures dropped and people just try to hammer between six and midnight to hit what they feel their daily mileage should be. Um, but, you know, back to the previous question. The, the, the record holder on the course and the star of, of, of the movie, um, is, his name is Ashbrihan Al-Alto uh, from Finland. He's one of the most prolific ultra runners that no one's ever heard of. But his day job is a postman. So for eight to 10 hours a day, five to six days a week, he's on his feet delivering mail. And he needs very little other specific training than that. And so in that sense, it's like, it's not so much that he's he's genetically better than anybody else, but his entire lifestyle outside the run is geared to making him a stronger multi-day runner. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I mean, I feel like that you kind of have to have some sort of like how, there's no real way to train for something like this uh, unless your lifestyle is being active and on your feet for many hours a day every day. Um, I, so this is kind of a side note, but I, I gotta ask what, like, what are people who live in the neighborhood think of all this? Like what, what, like <laughs> <laughs> it has to be a little odd, right? So I'm, 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 I'm saying this being like a first generation immigrant myself, like most of the people in that neighborhood don't come from athletic cultures. Um, that the, most of the people there are from like Bangladesh or the middle East. And so it's, it's not like people are out there, you know, fully conscious of what's going on. Um, there's a small contingent inspired by the race that come out to the school and do like morning laps. That said, when the, the, the six-year-old woman, Yolanda Holder, I spoke of earlier, the African-American woman, came and did the, uh, 
did the race in 2017, um, a lot of African-Americans from the neighborhood, you know, about a quarter mile away would come out every evening to watch her because mm -hmm. she was one of the few people that has run the race that like looked like, you know, people who live in the neighborhood. It's a, a minority rich neighborhood. Um, so, you know, in, in the past, or actually, even now, there's like the, the odd person in the neighborhood, you know, who, you know, really understands the race and comes and brings ice cream when it's hot or has their favorite runner and comes out and understands that it's it's an oddly enjoyable spectator sport, you know, to be honest. Um, and the, the race starts every Father's Day in June. And so if people look at our Instagram account at 3100 film, they'll be able to like see the geotag of, of a lot of the pictures but it's like coming out to a NASCAR race. It's like if you're only there for like a minute, you just go like, what the heck's going on? But mm. if you have like a picnic lunch and you've got drinks and you've got your lawn chair and you, you're there with buddies and you sit down, it's actually extremely enjoyable. And it's, it's, an, it's an odd thing once you get into the rhythm of the race. Um, you know, it, it's a, a very, very unique spectator sport. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine that to be the case, you know, just to kind of see how people, you know, I'm sure that there's not uh, a lot of action, like changing people on the leaderboard all that often, but to, just to kind of see people yeah. out there doing what they're doing. And I mean, it has to be fascinating. So, so I, we do want to talk about nutrition and how people handle, uh, I think you said 10 to 12,000 calories a day is what people are hitting. Uh, I, you know, how do you even begin to strategize around that? And, you know, where are people getting most of their calories? So the interesting thing is that the vast number of participants who've done the race do so on a vegetarian diet. Oh, um, man. I was thinking Doug might be the first one to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think, I, think I, I would guess that at most 5% of the people that have done it you know, have taken some sort of, of, of um, non-vegetarian item. Um, there's been a handful, maybe 10% that have done it on a, on a, on a vegan diet, um, or maybe more than that, maybe 15%. And there's one fellow that did it on an entirely raw diet. Um, Whoa. so the, the, and I, I think even with people that have, have come in as meat eaters, the, the key thing is number one, digestibility, uh, of, of your, your food sources. And, you know, you want things to burn quickly. You don't want like, you know, meat in your gut that's going to be like assimilated in eight hours or 12 hours or 16 hours. You're not eating for tomorrow in this race. You're eating for, for the next few hours. Um, so there's a, there's a kitchen that, that has volunteer cooks that are putting out, you know, four to five meals worth of, of food according to people's very specific diets every day. But pretty much every mile, um, every two laps, uh, runners take a serving of food supplied in Dixie cups, whether they're like cold soups with a lot of like coconut oil or ghee, or whether they're like superfood smoothies or um, slices of watermelon. Uh, the, the, the most prolific runner, Ashbri Hanal, you know, if he could eat cheesecake and pizza all day and drink Coke, that's all he would drink. So, <laughs> For him, it's much less about nutrition than it is about calories in. Um, the first, you know, three to four weeks of, of the race, people are pretty much burning all their fat stores. Um, the next three to four weeks, they're really hyper-focused on, on carbohydrates. And 
the last couple of weeks, invariably, you know, people start burning muscle. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really tricky balance. But again, it's like for most runners, it's like it doesn't matter how good your nutrition is if you're not eating as many calories as you burn. That's crazy. I mean, first of all, the idea that that the fueling strategy changes as your body composition changes. I mean, that's exactly what you'd expect. It's just you don't you're not used to thinking about that uh, when it comes to races that, that your body composition will change because the race is so long. Um, but more fascinating to me is that ninety percent of people you said are vegetarian who do it. I mean, that at, at it, least, at least, at <laughs> least. I, I mean, I, I could I could probably think of. Out of the the hundred or so people that have tried the race, I can only off the top of my head think of three or four that were meat eaters coming into the race. Uh-huh. You know, and I I, wow. I couldn't tell you how much meat they ate um, from from doing multi days with people that have eaten meat. It's like I, I for for the most part, it's like when you're at five or six days, like the the meat is more like a treat. Like you're they're dying for like you know fried chicken, and they just need right. it for inspiration, but you know, you find that like everything depends on your digestion. You will have the worst couple of days if all of a sudden your digestion gets shot. So it's it's much less about like, do I want to have like the great big juicy steak or do I want to be able to sleep tonight and do I want to have a good race tomorrow? Yeah, so that's, I was going to ask if it was like, if you thought it had to do with the fact that it was a race that was kind of, you know, I don't forget what's what's the sub oh the self transmit self transcendence thirty one hundred miler that if if it attracted the type of people who you know might view themselves as enlightened and be the type who would be vegetarian uh, or if it was purely a practical matter that you know like Scott Jer- to mention Scott Jerk again he said one of his points about vegan diets is that is that like if you look at what everyone eats during an event a running event an ultra event specifically they're mostly eating vegan vegetarian food so like why not continue that when you're not running, if you're looking to make it as easy as your body, easy on your body as possible, so it it sounds like it's probably more the latter that people just have said this is this is the way to eat during ultra and especially multi day events. I, I, I actually, actually, you know, it's it's and I, I, I in, in my experience, it's 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 the it's surprisingly it's the former um, hmm. because training for this race requires like a complete lifestyle shift. Um, you know, people come into it with a lot of spiritual training. Um, you know, having done a lot of multi days, and the the vast majority of people that that come into the race have been practicing a no meat diet for five, ten, twenty years, um, simply because their whole lifestyle revolves around either running or spirituality or both. Hmm. Really, really interesting. This is this whole thing is fascinating. Um, so, I guess the last question really is what. I mean, when you got into this, you must have been expecting one thing, and I imagine that even without doing the race, you probably learned a whole lot either about yourself or just about people. Uh, you know, what did you learn in the process of doing this? I mean, this is what I love about your podcast because you guys are focused on helping people become happier and better people. Um, when I used to run in high school and college, it was all about timing and placement in, in races, all about competition. And I, I, I did well in high school. I started doing well in college, and I burned out like most people do um, who, who just run with that type of rigor. And that was, God, that was 23 years ago. Um, but when we started making this movie in 2015, I, 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 for the first time in my life, I started really enjoying running. 
Hmm. And I looked at our Navajo character who talks about how when you run, your feet are praying to Mother Earth, you're breathing in Father Sky. And looking at Sean, I understood that he was wanting to become a better person. And it wasn't just a, a, a pursuit that was being measured month by month or season by season or race by race. And this is why I love your podcast, because I asked myself, like, what do I need to do to be able to run the rest of my life? You know, like what kinds of lifestyle or mental or spiritual changes do I need to make to be able to enjoy and get something out of running, you know, until I die? And that started with like, you know, understanding that I can really get a lot out of running if I take it, if I really approach it like a spiritual pursuit. And I'd, I'd never felt anything spiritual from running before, even though I meditate and I pray and I have an active practice. But as I started trying to discover the spirituality of running and practicing spirituality and breathing techniques and you know visualization through running after seeing you know our the characters in our movie do that i realized oh my god now i know why they run and now i now i know why they're so much better at it than i am and it's like i can do both i can become a better runner and a better person just by approaching this totally differently yeah that is super interesting all this is uh very fascinating. Uh, wish we go longer, but I think probably a good place to uh, to leave people so that they will go check it out. Uh, the movie is Thirty One Hundred Run and Become. Uh, Sanjay, where you mentioned a little quickly at the beginning, where people can find it, but what is the best place to go, or the best places to go and uh, and check this out? Check out the whole movie. It's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. It's on Google Play. And my 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 last little plug to both of you guys, you know, is. That the, the 3100 doesn't start, you know, you don't start doing that, you know, just on a lark. There, there are six-day races around the world, um, and you know, the, where, where you literally are on a on a one-mile loop for six days. There's, you know, food provided. Um, you bring your tent, and it's one of the most exceptional experiences I've ever had in my life doing six-day races. So, and so you've done and you don't, I didn't know you've done yeah. That. Yeah, and you don't have to do like a thousand miles in a day. It's like you can do twenty-five or thirty-five or forty-five. You can walk it, and nobody cares. But when you're out for you know that many days in a row, I felt something totally shift in my mind. And after about three days of pure torture, the last three days were some of the happiest happiest days I think I've ever spent doing physical activity. Hmm. So it's, I, it, I would encourage people like just find a six-day race. There's couple dozen of them in the U.S., take your six days off, maybe in the ones in Florida or Arizona, and just really see how much you enjoy running when there's nothing else you're really allowed to do. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of like a uh, those silent retreats people go on. It seems like the sort of same thing, same effect would happen. I think so. <laughs> All right, Doug, <laughs> next nominee meetup, I think. Uh, <laughs> I like it. I, you know, don't tempt me. <laughs> no, I'm serious. This actually does sound really interesting. So yeah, totally. thank you, Sanjay, for uh, for providing us with this perspective, making this film, and uh, hope everyone checks it out. Thirty one hundred run and become, and it is it is out now, right? People can go watch it immediately. It's out now, and uh, you know, check out the race if you're in New York this summer. It starts on Father's Day and goes for fifty two days. Um, so come <laughs> out, grab some takeout, some great New York pizza or Chinese food, and like spend an afternoon. I'd love to see you guys up here. Just awesome. Let me know if you guys make it. We definitely will. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Sanjay. I appreciate it. My Thank pleasure. You. All right. Bye.